welcome to Brown Bag, a podcast series looking at the interconnections between media, social media in particular, democracy, politics and technology from a Global South perspective. My name is Sanjana Hathatua and I am a special advisor at the ICT for Peace Foundation. I believe that the tech companies will be driven by profit and they will they will do good things as long as profit and doing good things go hand in hand. Um, and they will continue to do bad things as long as profit and doing bad things go hand in hand. And so for me, you know, with, with regards to how tech is currently structured, I believe regulation is absolutely essential. We all exist in the world today as, you know, people in, in, a, in an offline setting, the, the kind of like with kinetic human relationships, and we all at, at every moment of the day have our smartphones with us and exist in an online setting and continue to and, and hold those relationships, the same relationships we hold offline, we also hold those relationships online. And so for me, um, the importance of kinetic human offline relationships is absolutely critical, as critical as online relationships. Hello and welcome to another podcast. I'm speaking today with somebody that I've really admired for a while. Very excited to finally get the you know get the chance to speak with Vidya Ramalingam is the founder and CEO of Moonshot, um, a company that is a Google search away that does some extremely interesting work around countering violent extremism and has for a number of years as well. Vidya's own story is an interesting one and we'll cover all of that. But before we get into the meat of it, Vidya, thanks very much for joining me and the listeners as well. Thank you so much, Sanjana. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, so, I mean, there's so many questions that I have and so many ways we can start this conversation. But, um, you know, we were talking before we started about your journey into this world which you know from 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 an indian a global south perspective isn't really something that is an obvious pathway um so i mean how did you start looking at white supremacism and um you know you know violent extremism it's a great question and no it's it's not an obvious pathway uh, as someone who grew up the daughter of indian immigrants in the united states um, being frank, you know, race wasn't something that we spoke about a lot mm. growing up in my in my household. It, it wasn't something we had a lot of conversations about, but it was something that I spent a lot of time thinking about growing up in a in in a largely white community um, where I was, um, you know, my family and and I really stuck out stuck out like a, a, a sore thumb. And and so for me, the kind of conversation around race and and understanding my skin color and my position in that community was something I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking deeply about, despite not necessarily having lots of conversations about it as a child. And so as I grew up and, and as I um, got more involved in anti-racism activism, for me, there was always a missing piece. When, when I was working with anti-racism organizations um, and, and um, you know, attending, attending events and rallies, for, for me, the, the missing piece here was, well, who's gonna change those people's minds? 
you know, we as an anti-racism community are so used to already, you know, speaking to the people that um, that already believe in the cause or who are likely to believe in the cause. But for me, you know, I, I wanted, I, I really wanted to explore that question around how you actually change someone's path if they are if they are already racist, if they are already buying into these ideologies. What's what's it going to take to actually turn them? And so that was the start of of what ended up being a, a, a two year project of mine where I, I just started having conversations with white nationalists. And I, I, had, I had studied anthropology. I, I had a background and, and training in doing ethnographic field research. And at the time, lots of people told me, well, you're, you know, as a woman of color, you're not actually going to get access to white nationalists. You know, they're not gonna speak to you. And, and it was, you know, it was a, 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 an experience that I think really challenged a lot of people around me and challenged myself. Um, I, I spent two years having conversations with white nationalists, um, doing life histories with white nationalists. And for me, that that was a transformative experience in many ways and really opened my eyes up to um, just the human, the human element of this problem, that we're actually dealing with human beings, with complex human beings. And if we want to, if we if we even stand a chance at actually interrupting people's journeys once they're going down that path, we have to understand them on a human level. Um, and so that, that was really my entry point into this field of, of countering extremism, hate and terrorism. Um, but yes, a very unlikely journey for a, a daughter of Indian immigrants growing up in America. And a fascinating one at that. But listen, I mean, let's get to the heart of it really immediately. Um, I know your story. And in that sense, your story is one that has been uh, articulated by you quite beautifully and cogently and in a captivating manner in TED Talks and a number of other um, fora that are uh, that are all on the web. What I did want to ask and pick your brain on, Vidya, is, you know, you, you talk com in a compelling manner around at great violence through the nuance included in your story. In a sense, it's a personal transformation, right? I mean, it's a human connection, as you just said right now. So it's a one-to-one -one, um, uh, uh, thing that occurs, and over a period of time as well, with no guarantee of success around the final outcome. I want to pick your brain around the difference between that and structural violence, structural racism. Mm -hmm structural mm. prejudice and the kind of structural ingrained decades old issues around division hate hurt and harm in societies including racism for example uh and the um space for what you do and have done and you know in a sense what i'm trying to get at is how do you scale what you have done in the structural context conditions and countries that these problems are prevalent in does that make any sense it does it does and you know this question of structural racism institutional racism and how that relates to this this very individual problem as i described it this kind of yes. human human problem the, the two are fundamentally linked and we can't actually see the two in isolation the, the individual, the, the kind of human stories that lead people into these movements are fundamentally linked to the, the structural racism and the institutional racism that, that has existed in, in, in the countries that we're both based in, Chatsachna, mm. but in many other countries, of course. Mm. And, and actually, you know, the, the work that I do, which sits at the heart of or at the intersection of 
several different industries, right? Because I, I, I work at, at um, this kind of intersection between counterterrorism, um, technology, and then also entrepreneurship. And each of those industries is fundamentally and deeply impacted by structural racism. Yeah. I mean, the counterterrorism industry has a deeply problematic history in, in many countries, um, but certainly in, in um, two countries that I spend a lot of time in the United Kingdom and the United States, the counterterrorism industry has a deeply problematic history of stigmatizing and, and wrongfully targeting certain communities on the basis of their skin color, their religious background. So, you know, the, the work that I do and, uh, and, and even my own experience within, in, in doing this work are fundamentally impacted by those broader um, you know, societal problems. And so for me, dismantling violent extremism and hate has to go hand in hand with dismantling structural racism. You can't really do one without the other. And, yeah. and that said, you know, for, for Moonshot as an organization, and this is something I talk to our team about, you know, we have to be really focused and deliberate about the problems that we choose to solve while recognizing that it's that our work will rely on other organizations that are dismantling and solving a whole range of other issues that are fundamentally important to us achieving our mission. But we obviously can't do it all. And so, you know, I I, I, I very much um, rely on and uh, and we, we need far more investment in so many of the organizations that are really much more broadly working to dismantle structural racism. And that's going to be a, a kind of critical critical piece of work that needs to happen in order for an organization like Moonshot to even achieve our mission. So let me come at it another way. Um, in relation to the context that, well, you or Moonshot um, were familiar with and working in before the pandemic, um, even after 2016's um, American election and, of course, Brexit on the other side of the Atlantic, um, would you see any dramatic change for the good or the bad post pandemic with regards to what you just articulated in so far as the structural conditions go and how conducive they are and malleable to accommodating what you and moonshot do such that it's not a drop in in our ocean well you know being honest when i when I set up Moonshot, but also when I first entered this this space of working on um, prevention of white supremacist violence, I always considered myself to be working on a niche fringe issue. It was an issue that I, um, in, especially in the early days, I needed to um, struggle to get anyone else to care about, frankly. Yeah. Um, the vast majority of my early jobs in this space were advocacy jobs where I was desperately working to try and convince governments and, and other um, other uh, stakeholders that ho have power in this space to actually recognize the problem. And, and when we set up Moonshot in 2015, we always prided ourselves on being an organization that was dealing with, you know, in some cases, some cases the, 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 the thousands or the hundreds, but even in some cases the dozens of potential perpetrators. Like it was very much focused on reaching small communities that are at risk of perpetrating great harm. And for me, the fundamental shift that has happened in the last five years, but in, in particular in the last two years as a result of the pandemic, I think we have we have on multiple levels been going through crises as societies. And the global pandemic is one of those crises, but there are a number of other crises that are overlapping and creating and contributing to great anxiety in society at, at large, and certainly, as I said, in the countries that I spend most of my time in. And 
and you know the the kind of mass levels of anxiety uh, and these moments of crisis are moments where extremists have always sought to exploit that fear and try and turn that fear into um, personal gain for those movements. And, and I think what we've seen, especially in the last two years as a result of the pandemic, but then also if you look at a country like the United States, um, where they've gone through an incredibly polarizing election, mm. um, high levels of mass violence, gun violence in the last several years, um, it is it is just a tinderbox in America right now. You know, it, it doesn't take much for, uh, you know, for a, a polarizing debate to turn into something that's violent. And for, for a violent extremist, this is the ideal scenario Absolutely. to exploit fear and grow. And so uh, the, the kind of the, the thing that really worries me about the context we're in now is we are seeing like very fertile environment for these movements where there's mass um, portions of society that are now vulnerable to these narratives. And we're also seeing this dangerous blending and kind of metastasization of what were once very distinct um, conspiracy theories, uh, disinformation narratives, or extremist um, ideologies. Yep. We're now starting to see all of these conspiracy theories blend together in a really, uh, really very scary way, yep. and and to reach the public at levels that I have never seen before. I mean, you need not look further than how mainstreamed the concept of the Great Replacement has become in the last yep. two years, um, or last five years even, um, where you know, ten years ago. Um, that concept would, you know, would would have really been in fringe, in fringe um, political discussions uh, and fringe circles rather than in the mainstream. And so it's a it's a very dangerous context. And we, you know, as Moonshot, we now find ourselves running campaigns, reaching mass, you know, large audiences online, um, mass portions of the public. And I, I never thought we would be doing that as an organization, but that's that's where the problem has has gone in the last five years. Yeah, absolutely spot on. I don't think Madison Grant would have in his dreams thought that decades after he wrote uh, what he did, that it would be such a such a resonant thing uh, globally as well. And 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 Vidya, this is very much the case in New Zealand um, hmm. as well. Quite right. disturbingly, exactly what you uh, what you noted. Um, you know, I wanted to go back to something that you said and. Um, Quite correctly, uh, around the securitized discourse, very almost umbilically linked to NATSEC, national security around counterterrorism. Mm. And I just tweeted uh, today, at least on the day that we are recording this, uh, my concern with what was a very helpful capture of New Zealand's um, approach to counterterrorism uh, that they are still working on after March 2019. And they have put out a PDF with a with a capture of all of what the government departments and agencies and police and intelligence are doing. And I was concerned on a number of counts, but one was that it's a, it was a very heavily securitized uh, language and vocabulary. And um, it was also very heavily, you know, biased towards CT. Whereas right. I think that um, the conundrum here is that it's arguably biased towards CT because it's responding to March 2019. But for me, at least, and correct me if I'm wrong, and by all means, you know, um, push back on this, but um, linked to what you said, the context and culture and community and countries that we're dealing with today, you and I both, um, it's, it's a wicked problem um, where, uh, in a sense, without erasing or taking away from the brutality and the violence and the awful nature of it, March 2019 seems an almost simple issue now in, mm. in 
in with respect to what we are dealing with uh, would you agree uh, around that and if you do i suppose the second part of the question is where does human security lie hmm. it's you know i i wouldn't go as far as saying that march 19th is a simple sorry Mar march of 2019 is a is a simple problem to solve it's a piece of a much larger puzzle and a very complex puzzle and there is a place for a securitized approach but a securitized approach cannot solve all of our problems and i that you know i one of the the messages that i've i've really pushed with lots of policymakers and and governments that have advised over the last several years but certainly since the attack on Christchurch and since the the subject of of preventing white supremacist terrorism has has kind of really entered the the global political conversation is we we cannot make the same mistakes that we made in a post 9/11 context i mean the entire counterterrorism industry in the united states and in europe was really developed in a post 9/11 context there were lots of mistakes made in in particular um the over securitization of of our prevention approach um and then and then the securitization of certain communities that did not actually require that sort of security based response and we we obviously need to learn from those very real mistakes that were made the discriminatory practices that were put in place as we respond to this issue but i think there's we have to kind of separate out the some of the problems here that we're dealing with and they're all interconnected they're all related but there are there are different responses that are required at every spectrum of this problem so i'll i'll kind of take you through for a moment there's there's five different tiers that i see here so one is clear cut cases of terrorism uh and let's for for argument's sake and also because it's my area of expertise let's say we're focusing on white supremacist terrorism there are clear cut cases where there are people planning and plotting violence the christchurch attacker would have fallen into into that category where the our legal systems criminal justice system systems and policing systems need to be equipped to to handle those cases to identify those cases interrupt them um and also process those individuals through the criminal justice system so that's 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 one tier there's then an, another tier of individuals and problems which are the hardened ideologues and the people that are organizing um violent extremist or extremist activities um people who are getting involved but who haven't necessarily done something that's illegal yet and where the criminal justice system can't actually respond even if we you know wanted it to it can't because these individuals haven't done something illegal those communities require a an entirely different approach um those sorts of communities require um from from my perspective behavioral health interventions mm. um initiatives that actually work with those individuals on a personal level and try and rebuild their lives outside of these movements um programs that actually work to break down the ideology and actually you know rebuild not only a life outside of the movement but to to pull people into a, a more kind of pro-social democratic um way of living so that's that's an, another tier but then above that and if i if i talk about those tiers as being at the kind of bottom end of a funnel here um and we're moving up this funnel into the the wider pu public 
You then have uh, another few tiers of individuals. You have people who are who are supporters of these ideologies, who are not actually committed, but are engaging, and they're ripe for prevention efforts. But those prevention efforts need to look nothing like the efforts with the people that are already involved in the deeply involved in the movements. And then one level up, you have um, what I would call followers, people who are riled up by the ideology, but not actually engaging. Um, and don't want to lose what they what they have. They have a lot to lose by by going down that pathway. And with those audiences, they might be receptive to um, you know deterrence messaging or diversion mes messaging. They might be open to messaging about the consequences. But it's a very different intervention there. And yeah. then at the top of the funnel, you've got the general public, the audiences that are coming into contact with um, you know r racist propaganda, disinformation, and especially now where they're coming into contact. Um, with this on a on a regular basis, and they they don't pose a national security threat necessarily, but it is absolutely critical that we are doing work with those wider audiences to strengthen their resilience, democratic values, um, anti-racist norms, um, to boost their critical media consumption skills. Um, but the the work that needs to happen at that level needs to have nothing to do with terrorism prevention. It's about building resilience as democratic, inclusive societies. And frankly, we won't solve the terrorism problem unless we're doing work at every stage of that of that funnel or spectrum. Um, so, but it's different responses that need to happen at each level. Uh, and I think it would be an absolute mistake to over securitize and deliver, you know, especially with general public audiences or with even, uh, and I'm putting in, in air quotes here, Sanjana, communities. Because yeah. um, I always say, whenever I say the term communities, I get frustrated by what we mean. Yeah. But, you know, historically in the counterterrorism sector, there's been this um, misunderstanding that we need to do hardened, um, securitized counterterrorism work with the quote unquote communities that are at risk. And those tend to, you know, how that's that's historically been played out is that there's certain religious communities or ethnic communities that have been deemed at risk. And all the evidence shows us that's not how these problems work. There is not going to be any specific religious group that is that it should be deemed at risk. There's no specific socioeconomic group that should be deemed at risk. Um, you know, this is a, there is there are societal issues that we need to manage at scale. But then there are going to be individuals, and and those individuals could frankly come from any part of our society who are susceptible to violence. And th with those individuals, we need a a much more targeted approach. I, I hope that makes sense, Sanjana. But it's a it's a complex issue. It does, and it resonates with the last sentence of an article that you published in Open Democracy in August 2011. So very, very long time ago, where you were talking about the Norwegian mass shooting, the, 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 the terrorist attack by Brevik, and you said um, it was only the tip of the iceberg. You were giving, uh, you know, the, the entire article, um, and I'm sure you've forgotten about this, but I've read it. Um, uh, it was was trying to help us understand that there is no monocausal um, thing that drives an individual like him to do what he did. And sadly, we've seen this play out yeah. um, too many times since that uh, since that time. So I think what you just said really fleshes out um, for me how you ended that piece. And just to be very clear, what I what I meant about simplicity was not you know not I think what I had in mind that I didn't articulate was the information environment um, mm -hmm. where yeah. when I read about what um, what was done uh, to stymie, to stem, to control, contain, and curtail the seed and spread of that uh, material um and and what i'm looking at every day today as a consequence of the research that i do it's it's you know apples and oranges yeah, uh, yeah. and yeah, that, you know, that, that, i think that's right 
And and you know that's 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 what I want to get at with you because for the listeners who may be familiar with the work, you started doing well. You and the company started doing what you did with the redirect method with Google Jigsaw, right? And that's kind of um, for listeners who don't know, it's to um, or you can actually say this much better. I'm paraphrasing um, to present users who are interested in harmful. Um, uh, material and who may go down and at, are as consequentially at risk of going down rabbit holes that end up in um, hardened ideology and um, violent extremism. You kind of nudge them uh, away from it. Now, I, no, now I'm you know, I'm happy to be corrected because you're the guru here. Um, but no, but the question really is, you know, in a world where on Telegram, you can find anything that you want. It's a cornucopia. I've called it a Dantean hellscape. Um, that yes. is not Google. Yeah. Um, with an, any number of other ways now that you don't need to go to a search engine, even DuckDuckGo, for, for that matter. Right. How do you position the, the, the central framework of how you do what you do in today's information disorders hmm. it's so first of all your your description of the redirect method was was absolutely right i mean the the main reason why we designed that methodology and it was done as you mentioned in partnership with jigsaw at google it was we were attempting to um repurpose the commercial advertising space for social good and so that was the, the, the initial intent there. And while we started with Google as a platform and Google as a platform was a very important starting point because there, there are people that turn to Google search uh, to access information that is related to or indicates an affiliation with uh, or an inclination uh, to, to go down a terrorist path or a, a violent extremist path. So search was, a, was, a, was a, an, an important platform as a starting point. But you're absolutely right. The information environment goes well beyond um, search engines, and and actually today we, you know, it is it would be um, if if you tasked anyone, any any member of the general public, um, to you know within within sixty seconds find a piece of hate content online, I can guarantee you, and almost anyone can find it. You can do it on any platform. Um, this content is just so. Um, it is it is it's absolutely everywhere on the internet so search engines and, and doing work on search engines is not going to be enough in its own right for us the main challenge over the last um, six years or so was how do we take the learnings from the initial deployment of the redirect method on search and actually start to test this on other platforms mm. so what we've done over the last several years is a few things we have actually tested the use of commercial advertising on other platforms so any platform where you can advertise and where big brands are, are trying to advertise to sell us products what we are trying to do is see what, what targeting criteria can we use to actually reach people on those platforms who are indicating affiliation with a hate movement or extremist movement and reach them with safer alternatives. And we've done that on Instagram, on Twitter, on, on Facebook, on a whole range of platforms that mm. offer advertising. Mm. But beyond advertising, what we've increasingly found is people are most willing to engage this content when you reach them on an individual level. And that, that poses a, a central problem, right? Because if you want scale, advertising is yeah. obviously great for scale, yeah. and that's yeah. why big brands use it. If you want to reach people on an individual le level, that gets a lot harder to scale. And that's the main challenge for us now, because we found actually high levels of engagement when you um, send, send 
um, messages to individuals who are at risk and try and engage them in a conversation. The yeah. challenge for us is how do you scale that now? But one thing I would say is, um, you know, we when we run these methodologies, and we're we're obviously trying to counter movements whose ideologies are now very much in the in the mainstream. For us, we are increasingly not trying to get into ideological debates with those individuals. Our what we found is most effective when you are running campaigns to try and counter hate. We found that getting at the emotional drivers yeah. tends to be the most effective way to actually interrupt or get them to engage to interrupt their journey, but to get them to engage with your content. And so increasingly, we are testing um, behavioral health interventions online. So essentially trying to deliver counseling online with people who might be violent. But then also for people that are at that higher end of the funnel. So I was describing, you know, the, there's the people who are at risk of perpetrating violence. But then there's the, yeah, at the top of the funnel, there's people in the wider public who are maybe sharing this content and don't fully understand the implications of it, who haven't necessarily been pulled into a violent extremist movement but who who still require an intervention of some form. And what we've been finding with those audiences is, um, you know, there's 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 a whole range of, of empathy based messages or emotion based yeah. messages that seem to be effective. For example, telling people the impact of the, the harmful messaging that they're sharing. Um, if people are sharing hate content, actually um, direct messaging them and letting them know the actual impact of the words mm. that they're using mm. um, has a surprisingly uh, effective um, response mm. from them. So, mm. you know, the, mm. the the question for us is how you scale up that that direct messaging mm. approach, and that's something that we're working on. So, I have a personal story to share. When I started Groundviews in two thousand and seven, there were um, rabid trolls who used to come and you know accuse the platform and I of, of all manner of other thing, you know, things and you know bias and. Uh, um, and 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 use quite uh, strong language. Um, and when I and it, you know, you know how this goes, right? There's no recipe. It's a it's a judgment call, right? I mean, it's a it's a feeling. I can't I can't put it in any other way. I mean, you know, and maybe you have um, <laughs> extrapolated the metrics and made a model a around it. But in 2007, it was a hunch that if I were to engage this person maybe he or she would or they would change their mind and the other thing was you know some of the most rabid individuals over a period of time they stopped commenting but they did it after telling me that they saw what i saw and even though they didn't agree with me all the time they said that they were sorry for giving me a hard time and that they would not do so in the future. And they didn't. And I have some wonderful, yeah. you know, I can yeah. never put it out because I want to respect the privacy of the individual and their capacity to change as well. But, you know, it really resonates with me. And this is like, you know, 2007, 2008, you know, pre-social media. This was um, on WordPress, you know, on on, on commentary. Yeah. And, you know, it was the rare occasion where the person actually had a functioning email that they put up and we had these engagements. And you know, it, 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 what you say does make a lot of sense. But, you know, as you say, how the hell do you scale it? Yeah, yeah, it's I mean, I, I, I find stories like that. Like, stories like that, Sanjana, are, are what give me so much optimism around what's possible, even on the Internet. The Internet, I mean, we, we all talk about the Internet and recognize that, that, that the Internet is basically a cesspool of the most horrible things in the world at the moment. Yeah. But it is stories like that that give me optimism. And I. I, I've had similar experiences, and actually through Moonshot, what we've been trying to do is run in in as scientific a way as possible, run tests that take 
my my own my own assumption or hypothesis around what's possible online and actually try and test it in in um in, in settings that will get us robust evidence to to prove it and actually we've had some really interesting results there was a, an experiment that our team ran um, in sri lanka uh, a few years ago now where we were testing um directly engaging with with uh twitter users who were posting ultra nationalist um and and kind of hateful content against certain communities so racialized um and and uh and kind yeah. of uh content that that uh denigrated those communities and we ran a campaign where we were we were sending them direct messages um talking to them about the impact of their tweet and just letting them know that their tweet was hurtful and the you know the impact that it might have and we were able to prove and we actually you know we're able to get uh, statistical significance on the results we were able to prove that actually receiving those messages and engaging with those direct messages actually led to a measurable decrease in mm. those same users posting hate content in the mm. weeks that followed. Mm. And so, you know, the, it was a small scale test and now we're working to test that in other contexts and, and do it at scale. But, um, you know, for me, those stories that you mentioned, those are the that's the anecdotal evidence that for me is the basis for all of these experiments that Moonshot is trying to do at scale. And I, I fundamentally believe that the internet creates opportunities for us to have those meaningful conversations yeah. and for people to actually do better. Um, and and we yeah we just have to we just have to to keep trying. You know that. That's you have to live the example. I mean, what Groundviews did, and yeah. it was the first and uh, the only only site. It has a it has a published framework around how you can engage with an issue without actually hurting or harming or or, or name calling or denigration. And it was. Yeah evenly applied and you know some of the hardest stuff was when for me was when i emotionally felt connected to the rhetoric against mm. the government and i still mm. didn't yeah. allow it you know uh, yeah. because it had to yeah. be done and that's kind of also where the respect from people who hated me came over time where they kind of recognize yeah. actually um this is not a platform that um, even allows content that you know, Sanjana Hattodo is partial too. So anyway, I mean, we can yeah. talk about this much yeah. more, but I do want to listen, you know, while I have you, I want you to pick your brains on something. And it is um, frontier issues that I think are going to be and you know, on at some level are already front door issues. You know, there's a whole there's a whole conversation right now about the centrality of platforms and the whole raft of issues around governance and whatnot. And, you know, algos and, you know, the whole business about um, algorithmic amplification and countering that and i'm sure you've heard it is mastodon and you know blue sky from twitter and all the all the platforms that seek to democratize and give the power to the user and that word again communities to kind of create the communities that they want to see and how they want to govern it and you know that there, there seems to be a manichaean kind of contest as it were at great violence to the nuance of it around you know the silicon valley and then this model which is um you know touted as going back to the halcyon days of perhaps geocities or whatever and you know i don't want to get into that debate but the, the, the question i wanted to ask you kind of connected to my earlier one is in a world where we are probably going to see a greater democratization and consequentially a greater decentralization of wellsprings of hatred and harm where we won't you know you and i won't even know where they are leave aside how to figure out you know the pathways of radicalization um 
what do we do in that sense? I mean, in a way, the problems that we have today are with, you know, named, you know, companies that, that, that in a sense, we can go to and say, hey, I have an idea about using ads or, you know, changing our algo or whatnot. Yeah. But what do we do if in the future we're going to have the case where, you know, you have those decentralized, democratized platforms that sound great, and I'm not saying that they're bad, but how do you kind of retrofit what you are trying to do in a fundamentally different model of uh, social media, given what we have today? Hmm. It's a it's a really interesting and tough question, Sanjana. I mean, I I am first of all on on big tech and on the the current way that the the, the tech world is structured. I am, and I, I say this, you know, we work with the tech companies, and I, I say this directly to them. Um, <laughs> but I'm hugely cynical of the yeah. about the the, the positive intentions um, and the will that the tech companies have to actually do good on their platform. Uh, and I, I am, you know, I, I believe that the tech companies will be driven by profit and they will, they will do good things as long as profit and doing good things go hand in hand. Um, and they will continue to do bad things as long as profit and doing bad things go hand in hand. And so for me, you know, with, with regards to how tech is currently structured, I believe regulation is absolutely essential. And in addition to that, what what we're trying to do is work with the tech companies to build safeguards into the platform, um, you know, recognizing the harms that they perpetrate. How can we make the platforms as safe as possible um, within those within the the kind of constraints that they're operating? But I but but yeah, I'm I'm hugely cynical about just how far they'll go. I suppose um, you know when it comes to decentral the possibility of decentralized tech. Um, and you're right, that's an entirely different uh, environment to the one that we're operating in. I see greater possibility mm. for, um, for, for platforms to invest in, in doing good uh, in that environment. I mm. see greater possibility for like, commercial gain and doing good to go hand in hand. And I think one of the challenges that, that um, we're kind of dealing with in the, the way that the current market operates is that polarization and profit tend to go hand in hand. And we need to find some way of breaking that cycle. And I see more possibilities to break that cycle with decentralized technology. But I, uh, I, I would be lying if I, if I said to you that I had some great vision or great plan for how Moonshot would, would be able to do our work in, in that context. I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm kind of working through it myself. I see possibilities, yeah. but I don't necessarily see some kind of neat solution as to where we would fit in. Um, but. It's it's a it's a really important question. I'm going to take that away today, Sanjana, and think more about it. <laughs> well, it's refreshing to hear somebody who says that they don't know, which to me is a sign of great wisdom, as opposed to giving a, a solution that is half you know half baked. Um, so you know, good on you. <laughs> you know, but I you know I, I, the reason I ask that is that it's it's weighing on my mind. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. um, yeah. around the future yeah. that you and I will live to see, um, uh, that is coming as a kind of uh, wave against and in opposition to and in frustration with and maybe even driven by anger around what is there today, but is not mm. necessarily from an engineering standpoint or from a socio-technological standpoint going to ameliorate or you know, have be a panacea to what we are dealing with today. Mm. That's kind of where the yeah. question came from. Yeah. Listen, yeah. I have two more questions to ask you. And one is, you know, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but M uh, Moonshot deals with six online harms, you know, six vectors mm. or six pillars, as it were, violent extremism, dismissing for targeted violence and hate speech, GBV, GBV for listeners is uh, gender-based violence, 
child sexual exploitation and abuse material uh, and modern slavery. Um, my, my question was, in a sense, a simple one. And it's also kind of anchored to the, I mean, I don't know even how to, I really am struggling for words to capture the degree to which the volume, velocity, and vectors of misogyny and toxic masculinities have expanded um, mm. in just New Zealand. Um, and that's kind of where I'm coming from as well. Why isn't, or rather, where do you see the role, reach, and relevance of misogyny and toxic masculinities um, in the pillars that have uh, you know, traditionally been what Moonshot has focused on? Mm. Well, it, it's relevant to each of those pillars, mm. and mm. and actually, in in as I as I'm kind of thinking of each of those different subject matters, I mean, on on violent extremism, it's perhaps obvious, but but you know, most of most of the movements and the ideologies that um, many of us who work in this space have, have worked to counter are fundamentally misogynistic um, but, Sorry to interject there with there, but I don't think it's obvious. That's certainly not my experience. Hmm. You would think it's, so. You, know, you would hope so, yeah. but it's not. It's, you know, in in almost every project that, that Moonshot has run around the world, um, and in, on, almost, on almost any ideology that we have done our work, there is, there is always some sort of intersection with either gender-based violence or misogyny, broadly speaking, and it comes mm. in different forms, mm. but that, has, that is omnipresent in our work in, in almost any context where we've delivered it. Um, so for us, the, the two go hand in hand, and we've actually done some specific projects that look at the intersection between gender-based violence and violent extremism um, and, and genuinely spanning ideologies. Um, I mean, on, on some of the other issues that, that we work on, so whether it's child sexual exploitation or trafficking, um, once again, I mean, women and, and children are disproportionately the victims and, and survivors in those particular harms. Um, and the, the kind of, it's, it's challenging to speak about ideologies in those contexts because they're not obviously, um, they're not movements necessarily in the sense of, of a violent extremist movement. But there are, um, you know, certainly ways of thinking and patterns of thinking that um, that perpetrators uh, and and buyers in both of those contexts um, are, are are adopting that are fundamentally based on a kind of misogynistic worldview. So for for me, misogyny and and um, and kind of and broadly speaking, kind of the, the the term toxic masculinity are something that we need to reflect on in, in responding to any of those harms, mm. um, some more so than others, but certainly across the spectrum. It's just that I, you know, I completely agree with you. I just don't see that being talked about with the degree that it should, um, mm. um, particularly with some platform specificity, um, and it and 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 them acting as wellsprings for the irrigation of the of all of that that then spills over into say the facebook and twitter which is certainly what's happening in here in new zealand and i worry really uh, uh, around um, uh, around that um, and 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 it not being talked about in the way that you just articulated um i suppose the you know the final question at least for this podcast is linked to where we started and where you started in a sense um in the nordic scandinavian countries um an indian um you know standing out like a sore thumb i would imagine um 
and going and talking to these individuals and doing what you did and doing the research that you did and you know coming out with the outcomes and the experiences and the stories and you know it's a longer conversation but i've always thought about with your what do you do offline yeah you know in information disorders and kind of what you do also is so much and what i do as well i mean it's so online it's so mediated by technology and social media and smartphones and browsers and computers and i just wanted to you know because you started where you did and you've articulated that human to human contact is important albeit i suppose in with moonshot it it's it's mediated also through technology but where do you see you know kinetic human contact you know where 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 people come together and the social structures that undergird and you know bind social cohesion um i know it's a it's a it's a analog question from a digital person as it were if ever there was one but but would you see an importance in talking about that um and 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 how it is um i would say but you can context inextricably entwined with the work that you do hmm. well you know it it all comes down to human relationships these these problems that we've discussed actually every single problem whether it's violent extremism or any of those other pillars that moonshot works on the 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 dynamics that get people into those movements are fundamentally based on human relationships and the dynamics that get people out of those movements and problem sets are fundamentally based on human relationships and for me the the only reason to do work on the internet the only reason to see the internet as a tool is as a tool that powers human relationships and so when i oftentimes find um, especially as an organization that does work specifically in the online space i oftentimes find that in conversations with policymakers and decision makers they they oftentimes say the work we're doing is is purely online but what you know what what can we do offline and for me there's no distinction between the two we all exist in the world today as you know people in in a in an offline setting the the kind of like with kinetic human relationships and we all at, at every moment of the day have our smartphones with us and exist in an online setting and continue to and and hold those relationships the same relationships we hold offline we also hold those relationships online and so for me um the importance of kinetic human offline relationships is absolutely critical as critical as online relationships um it's just a matter of recognizing in the 21st century that every kinetic offline relationship we have will probably have an online dynamic to it because we are all spending so much time on the internet we're consuming a, a whole a huge amount of content online we're getting our news from the internet um and so there is there is no way you you can't you can't address this problem by addressing both online and offline relationships but it all comes down to human relationships in whatever form that takes and so i absolutely believe there is value in us uh identifying what we can do in the world around us um separate from the internet what can we do in our day-to-day -day conversations with our friends our peers our family members to um to to interrupt these problem sets to interrupt the spread of disinformation i mean i myself and my own family have have had conversations related to disinformation that are se separate from the work i do on the internet and they're the hardest ones aren't they yes actually. yeah absolutely absolutely yeah but there is you know the the same methodologies that we deliver online i have employed in in conversations with family members and so i actually see very little divide between what we do in the online world and what we do offline it's all about human relationships it's all about how you can use human relationships to pull people into a a, a non-destructive 
healthy um, way of living and, and uh, engaging with the world around them. And I think we can do that both online and offline. Listen, Vidya, if you can change the anti-Ankar network from our part of the world, you are going to join the pantheon of Hindu deities, I think, <laughs> if, if, that, if that were to be achieved. And I hope and I hope that you do, you know, and I, and I really do. Listen, <laughs> on, 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 on that note, it's been, a, it's been fantastic um, speaking with you, Vidya Ramalingam, the founder and um, CEO um, and, 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 and force behind Moonshot. Thanks very much for joining me and our listeners on this podcast. Thank you so much, Sanjana. Absolute pleasure.